Hello, and welcome to the Learning to Learn podcast, where we provide tools and resources to educators and parents of kiddos who could use a little extra help. With our combined 50-plus years of experience, we've helped thousands of students improve their academic proficiency, boost their test scores, and chart a course to a lifetime of growth, all by discovering the joy of learning. Look us up or connect with us at mmeslearn.com. I'm your host, Nehemiah White, and today we have with us again the founder of Mrs. Myers Education Services, Tammy Myers. Tammy, thanks again for joining us today. Thank you, Nehemiah. I appreciate you having me. Well, today we're going to learn a little bit about you. Me? You. Yes, you. <laughs> this is a surprise. <laughs> um, over the last couple of weeks, uh, or I guess, I guess the last couple of podcasts, we've talked about some of the broader context surrounding intervention around our education system and some of the concerns there, some of what's being done right, some of this, what can be changed. Today, we'd like to hear a little bit about how a speech pathologist changed early education. I'm, I'm hoping to go back. I, I, I think just for our listeners, we have an episode that we shot a couple months ago uh, that we have posted on YouTube. Uh, we'll drop the link for it in the podcast that really you go back to when you were a girl, right? When right. You were, <laughs> In high school, and there were some factors that, I guess, sparked some interest in the speech pathology world. Our listeners can go to that video and get really a broader history mm-hmm. of where you came from. What I'd love to hear is maybe touch just real briefly on that high school experience and then where you, where you went into college and then where we went from there. Sure. Oh, boy. Okay. Briefly. I became interested in speech pathology uh, because I was in drama in high school and our drama teacher was casting us for a play. And I think I said it was Annie Oakley in the last podcast, but it wasn't Annie Oakley. It was Calamity Jane. So I got those two names mixed up in the previous podcast, but in either way, they both had an accent. And I'm from the South. My drama teacher thought I needed even more of a Southern accent. So she rewrote my script phonetically and taught me to read it. Now, phonics is the coding sort of like letters. They And some do resemble the letters. It's phonetics, actually. Phonetics are letters or shapes that represent sounds, actual sounds. So in our English language, you know how you have a C that can make a, a, a hard K sound or an S sound, right? There really isn't a sound. (laughs) It's either a hard K or an S. Well, phonetics takes that sound and gives it one exact symbol that represents that sound, not two sounds. So each sound in our language has its own symbol. So she rewrote my script in the secret code of phonetics and taught me to read it. And it changed my accent because she was able to manipulate every little vowel every little inflection. And I thought it was fascinating. I, I loved it. it. I fell in love with that. And I thought, that's the coolest thing. I want to do that. So then I started college, went to college, started out on a speech pathology track. And then, you know, several things happened throughout those years. And I changed majors a few times. And I kept coming back to speech pathology and ended up exactly where I was supposed to be as a speech pathologist. It took me probably an extra year to graduate 
and then go into graduate school and then do my clinical fellowship a year for my national certification and then became a speech pathologist. So you went to school for speech pathology. There was a little bit of a roundabout to get there. Mm -hmm. Are there any specific experiences during your secondary education at college years that were rather transformative for you or that sticks out in your mind in your journey? Well, I will tell you that Way back when, when I went to school, there were two tracks for speech pathologists. There was an educational track and a medical model track. The unit of speech language pathology did not incorporate both tracks. You were either going to work in a school as a speech therapist, or you were going to work in a hospital with adults, mainly adults, some children that were medically um, based. So there really wasn't this engagement that the anatomy and physiology and neurology of speech and language was incorporated into the educational model. And that's what's piqued my interest. I really wanted to know why we speak the way we do. How do we learn language the way we do? You know, what is it, our bo- how are our bodies made and designed to do this? And then when it doesn't work right, and we have individuals that struggle, either children that can't learn to speak or say their sounds incorrectly, or adults that have a stroke or a head injury, and they lose their way to understand language or their their means of communication, I wanted to know how that happened and what part of their bodies and their, their brains were affected. And so it was very interesting to me. So I did choose the medical track. And when you choose the medical track and you go through your education process, you're placed in a position to get a job in medical facilities. And that's what I did. For the first 15 years of my career, I worked primarily with adults with medically-based speech and language disorders. So it wasn't until I moved to rural Arkansas in a little town of 2,000 people and you know, essentially Mayberry and and hung my shingle out of my carport uh, to start seeing people that I I did continue to work with adults. I, I worked in the rural hospitals. I worked in long-term care, skilled nursing facilities, and in home health. And I was contacted by the Children's Hospital, and they needed some help working with the uh, children that were terminally ill, but living at home for for the remainder of their of their life. And when they first contacted me, I immediately rejected it. My heart, I just couldn't hardly stand to, to even think about that. Um, I can't even look at an animal on the side of the road. And so I just said, I, I just can't do it. I just don't think emotionally I could do it. And a few weeks went by and they called me again. And they said, we can't find anyone to help these children. Do you think you could help them? And I said, okay, let me think about it. I thought about it and I, and I prayed on it. And I said, you know, call them back. I said, I will do this temporarily, but you cannot count on me full time. You cannot, I, my heart can't, can't do this. Now keep in mind this program through children's hospital that monitored these children that were terminally ill they the children were classified as terminal you know their the lifespan 
could could be years. It could be a muscular dystrophy. It could be a like a Warning Hoffman disorder that you know children can live into their late teens, early twenties. So there were some children that were on this program for years, and then there were others that were on this program for a matter of weeks or months. So it it was very varied in the longevity of the children. And I started, um, and I, I, I started working through them and really bonded with the families and bonded with the children. And that's when word got around, I don't know if you've ever lived in a small town, but word travels that when you start working with children, you start getting phone calls <laughs> to work with more children. So as word spread that I was working with children, I got more referrals to work with children. And so I was working, you know, half time with children, half time with adults. What I discovered was that a lot of the medically fragile children I was working with, I was able to draw on my expertise in a medically based profession working with adults. A lot of the the dysarthria, the weakness of muscles, the lack of coordination, the thinking process, the cognitive parts of language I was able to use in working with the medically based children. But then when I got referrals for children that just needed some help for a little while to learn their sounds or to help with some language, I went back and studied and I had to get a mentor. And I had to refresh myself on working with with children. And in doing that, I discovered that I loved working with children with autism. Like I, it was so interesting to me to have this child that had this diagnosis that was so varied, but that profoundly impacted their ability to communicate that I wanted them to know their world and be able to interact with their world. And so I focused my continuing education on working with children with autism and the behaviors around communication that are needed. And then I also focused on uh, childhood apraxia of speech, which is the motor disorder. And there's a very high incident of children with autism that have apraxia of of speech. So, I mean, really, you got your speech path degree and you went kind of the medical route. You were classic medical speech pathologist. Mm-hmm. But then there was a calling that came that you really, your heart couldn't take it. Then it was that classic moment of, all right, a little bit, but not no more. <laughs> and it, once it once it got a hold of you, it just wouldn't let go. That's exactly true. So what's one of the primary differences between working with adults and children? Gosh, I don't know that I've ever been asked that question. I love working with adults. I mean, it's, it's extremely rewarding also working with adults. It's a lot more predictable, though. I will have to say it's, it's predictable. It's somewhat... With, with adults or yes, children? Okay. With, with adults. It's not as exciting because there's not a lot of new that happens. But when you work with children... They're unpredictable and they're a lot more malleable. So you always have this level of uncertainty that you don't know what's going to happen. (laughs) 
but you also have a difficult time predicting the progress they're going to make and, and what's going to happen next. And so it takes uh, quite a bit of forethought because if you have a child that is making significant gains and you're scaffolding their program, I mean, they may scaffold right out of their goals and you better have another one ready to go. I mean, that part's exciting in working with children. The unpredictability. The unpredictability. <laughs> As a parent, that's our least favorite thing about our kids. <laughs> As a speech pathologist, your most favorite trait of working with yeah. children is their unpredictability. <laughs> it keeps it exciting. I mean, they're funny. I have a, a little book that I write comments in that kids make. And I keep, I mean, I've threatened for 20 years to publish a book of just the comments. <laughs> that would be so fun. We'll have to pull some of those out on a future episode. Now, I want to dive into the apraxia a little bit. Because it sounds like that was a little bit of a transformative moment for you as well. Mm -hmm. Can you explain in layman's terms the apraxia and what contributes to that? So apraxia of speech is when the brain knows what you want to communicate, the message that it wants to send. And when the brain has that information, it's supposed to send a sequence of chemicals through your neurons that tell your muscles how to move to make those sounds and communicate that message. So it's voluntary muscle movement. Okay. So if I were to say, Nehemiah, put your hand on your head, you would, that's a voluntary movement because I asked you to put your hand on your head. So you'd pick up your hand and you'd put it on your head. Involuntary muscle movements are movements that you don't think about. You know, you didn't get a command. You just don't have to think about it. So if I say something funny, you're going to smile, but I'm not going to have to say, that was funny, Nehemiah, you need to smile. Children with apraxia can smile involuntarily, but if you tell them to smile, they can't smile or it's a forced smile or their muscles are asymmetrical, their mouth is crooked in an an unnatural way. Uh, the same thing with trying to produce speech sounds. If you, you know, tell a child, say mama, say mama, and they say ah-ah or ma-ba or ba-ba, that can be apraxia. What you do when you're looking to see if a child has apraxia is the, the muscle tone itself. A weakness in muscle tone is called dysarthria. And dysarthria can contribute to a lack of coordination of muscle movements too. So the sequencing of muscle movements that helps produce a speech sound. I mean, it, it gets a lot more complicated. I'm trying to make it simple so that everybody can understand that apraxia is inconsistent muscle movements because the message that's received from the brain is consistently jumbled. There's not a predictability of how the message is going to be sent to the muscles. So just to clarify, you say it's involuntary muscles, which mm -hmm. the it's the voluntary muscle movements? So voluntary muscle movements are disrupted from an, a sequence, a chemical sequence that the brain is sending to the muscle to move. Okay. That chemical sequence gets jumbled. So that is because we place the demand of communication 
on the child and it becomes a voluntary muscle movement. So you have a child that can be surprised and without even thinking about it, they could say the word elephant. But if you were to say, what did you say? Say elephant. Say elephant. That child would not be able to say elephant back to you. That's crazy. So they can say <laughs> it involuntarily? It's, it's, it it's is. really not crazy. It's, it's, <laughs> well, it's a crazy concept to think about, right? So I, I'm, I'm, uh, I come from the world of food equipment, right? That's what I've done <laughs> in my past. So diving into these aspects of chemicals and mm-hmm. like how the brain interacts, it's a crazy concept to me that I can have this involuntary movement. But if you tell me to make that involuntary movement again, I won't be able to do it. Correct. So where's the first place you start then? Typically what I do is I start with high valued, highly motivating objects. And I start with word approximations. So I don't expect perfection right off the bat. And essentially I want a child to be able to imitate movement before sound. So if I need them to put their lips together, I'm going to have them show me that they can put their lips together when I do, and they can imitate that, which is a voluntary movement, before I put sound with it. Hmm. So it's like you're building a, a house almost with words. Yes, exactly. So we'll imitate first. And once we imitate, then... Usually I will pull back from imitation and give a command to perform. So instead of saying, do this, I'll say, put your lips together, right? So I'm giving them a command associated with that muscle movement. So it's still voluntary. Okay. Then once they can imitate, I'll say, do this. Then the next step is put your lips together and they do that and they can do that multiple times. Then I will say, do this. So we're going to go back to imitation. Mm. And then I'm going to say, say, mm, and have them do that. Once they can do that, then we'll go to another sound. Wow. That's, I mean, that's, Sounds complicated. It sounds like there's a lot of pieces there. And I, I guess we got, I got a little bit of distracted by the geeky side of this, <laughs> this story, you know, the, the, the fascinating part of the story of like the apraxia and what you do there. And I think we're going to talk a little bit about that. We're going to take some more time in a future episodes to flush that out, right. Okay. From a speech pathologist standpoint, and then how that's applying to uh, teaching my child how to read. Cause mm-hmm. when a lot of our listeners hear speech pathology, they're thinking, like you said, maybe the medical side and they're like, yeah, but what, how's speech pathology going to help our children to read? So maybe if you can, you left off with, you really started to enjoy working with children with autism, Mm -hmm. uh, dealing with these matters of apraxia, but you were still speech pathologist at that point. Can you chart for us what brought you from the speech pathology to becoming a interventionist in a sense. I mean, you're not an interventionist yourself, but you've developed this intervention curriculum. What What's the path from the speech pathologist to where we are now? Sure. Well, okay. So two things. I'm still a speech pathologist, <laughs> 
will be the rest of my life. And I am an interventionist. Speech pathology is part of an intervention. So when you talk about interventionist, you're you're talking about individuals, professionals that are experts in supporting children that need help, that, that they're just not on the same level as their peers. And they provide that support or they provide that intervention. So what happened as I started working with children with autism, I started um, learning about applied behavioral analysis, about the psychology behind learning, the, the process of teaching children how to learn, and using a multimodality approach for that. And it's interesting to me that most of our education in the United States is heavily weighted on one modality. And it's and and that's not just in our education system, it's also in our therapies provides our interventions, heavily weighted in one modality. And And what's that one modality? The auditory modality. Okay. Right? So, you know, you you are, you're taught to listen. You're taught to listen. And listening is an excellent modality. Don't get me wrong. We all take advantage of it, right? And we um, could probably all do it with uh, <laughs> improvement in that area, right? <laughs> so we have the visual modality, the, the tactile modality, the proprioceptive modalities, you know, where we fit in space in our world. And we, we talked about a little bit about this last time that initially we come into this world learning about our world through experiences. And those experiences come through all modalities, not just the auditory modality. So I don't, you know, over the course of time and education, all of our learning has been geared toward that auditory modality. I don't know if it's easier, if it's less expensive, you know, you don't have to have so many tools. I'm But the fact that as I'm learning to work with these children with autism and I'm learning about the psychology of learning, the science of learning, the neuroanatomy of learning, memory, retention, how cognition affects learning as well as language affects learning, the environment affects your learning, uh, all of those things integrated, I was finding out that as I'm physically working with children, trying to help and support their growth and communication, I'm discovering that if I use a multimodality approach, so not only am I using the auditory approach, I'm using a visual stimulus approach, I'm using a kinesthetic approach, I'm using a proprioceptive approach, I'm um, in a way that cycles learning through highly motivating activities that are enjoyable my the children i'm working with are learning and not they're not just learning on pace they're learning quickly and um, they're learning to read so what brought you to that point so you were you started looking into the multimodalities of how our, how we teach children mm-hmm. so you were a speech pathologist you opened a reading room at some point, mm-hmm. and is that what started your journey toward the Mrs. Myers Education Services? Yes. 
I think next episode, I'd really love to hear that turning point from what really, really wasn't a turning point when you put on another tool, if you mm -hmm. will, and started adding another resource to your community. Because the whole journey to speech pathology for you was, I mean, there was a lot there that we didn't even touch on. And even the whole experience of starting to work with children, you and I have talked with that a little, about that a little bit in the past. Mm -hmm. And I, I think our listeners could benefit from that a little bit as well. So I think in the next episode, let's dive into where you came from to start the reading room and then what the journey has been since then. Sure. It's been about a, what, a 10, 10 year journey? It has been. Let's see. We opened our doors in January of 2012. Okay. So oh, uh, just a little over a year, just over 10 years, mm -hmm. just over a decade. And uh, here we are now in discussing matters of intervention <laughs> in our nation's schools, mm -hmm. not just how we learn how to speak within the medical system. Right. Right. That's true. Uh, so Tammy, really appreciate you starting us off on that journey from what got you into the speech pathology um, some of the cool stuff that you learned about chemicals and how they work with our involuntary and voluntary muscle movements. I'm teeming with questions. So it was just all I could do to like not ask all these questions and interrupt your story. For our listeners, really appreciate you joining us today. Um, if you have questions, feel free to reach out to us at mmeslearn.com. If you just are curious about some of Tammy's story, or if you have some specific questions around some of the details that Tammy discussed today, feel free to reach out to us. But in the meantime, we look forward to being with you next time. Thank you for joining us on the Learning to Learn podcast. Mm -hmm.